on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking questions people have concerning God's Word, the only book he ever wrote, the Holy Bible. Or maybe there's a particular uh, challenge in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, it's 525-1859, area code 843-525-1859. Our toll-free number for our Internet users is 877. The call letter is WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or you can simply dictate your question, or you can email us here directly into the studio. We already have several email questions here in front of us that have come in. And if you'd like to email us, the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here on this uh, beautiful Tuesday cloudy morning here it in the Low Country. Is. It is indeed, Pastor, and we do, as you said, uh, have a number of questions that are here, so let's get to them. Uh, Emmanuel from Cordova, Tennessee, wants to know, what is the meaning of Revelation 1-6 concerning kings and priests? Also, does the Bible address groups or organizations such as fraternities and sororities? Uh, If someone I know and love is, in fact, a member of one, assuming that they are unbiblical, what scriptures do I provide for sharing with them? Well, it's a good question. Uh, Let me read Revelation 1 in verse 6 for just a moment. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Most people call the book of Revelation, Revelations, but it's not. There's no S on it, and it's not multiple revelations. It's a single revelation that the Lord gives here to uh, his people Uh, through the Apostle John. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom uh, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion 
forever and ever. So there is a slight translation difference. Uh, here in the NASB, it says he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Uh, the Old English renders it, and he hath made us kings and priests unto God. Really, the thought's pretty much the same. Uh, God has created a kingdom, and he has made us co-rulers with Christ. So in one sense, that makes us kings. And so that's where the emphasis is put on on the uh, Old English of the uh, King James. Uh, whereas uh, in the New American Standard, as in uh, the New King James, it puts the emphasis on the kingdom that we are a part of. In either case, the, the thought is the same. And also this aspect that we are priests uh, when you become a believer. And this was one of the uh, catchphrases of the Reformation called the priesthood of the believer meaning that we are all believer priests, which uh, really have two important dimensions to it, among others. First, that we have direct access to God, that we didn't have to go through a priest or a bishop or a pope to be able to contact the Lord, that we could go directly to the Father through the Son. And then secondly, with it is responsibility. Just as a priest ministered and served on behalf of God, even so believer priest. And we need to emphasize that because I know in some denominations they call the pastor a priest. And really every believer who has had a second birth is a believer priest. He's made us a kingdom of priests. Peter underscores um, this great truth that um, we are as God's people given gifts. He says um, now um, it says you are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So a priest would one proclaim the truth about God. And we're called to do that in the great commission. The great commission extends to every born again believer. It's not just given to missionaries or to pastors and evangelists, but every child of God has been given the great commission of our savior to go into all the world. Literally it says, as you go, make disciples, not do discipleship. That principle is taught, but that's not what the text says. It says, as you go, make disciples, paraphrase, as you go, make converts of who? Of all nations, of all peoples. Uh, There's no one uh, that is out of our reach, out of our target audience. God has called us really to reach anything that moves. And so as believer priests, we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness. We're talking about what God is like and the need that people have for salvation. But also as believer priests, as Peter will affirm in the fourth chapter, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God has given you a ministry. If you're a born again Christian, you have at least uh, one spiritual gift that you are to use in the local church. That's the primary place it's to be used. There might be secondary places, uh, you know, parachurch ministries that are out there in the community. But the primary place that God calls you to use your gift is in the local church. That's where you start. Now, if you have time to go do something with, you know, the Gideons or, you know, community Bible fellowship or child evangelism, that's all gravy. That's on top of it. But our primary place of service is to be in the local church. That's where God puts the emphasis And that's where we are to put it as well. Anyway, that's a great question from Emmanuel emailing us here this morning from Tennessee. Let's go to our next question. And if you want to call us again, the number locally is 525-1859 
or toll-free at 877, the call letters WAGP 980. Our next listener is from Buford, and they'd like to know, do you believe Constantine the Great was a Christian? And would you explain why? There are a lot of opinions on this, so this listener is wondering about yours. Well, um, Constantine is an interesting individual. One of the things that we have to do in our day is we have to separate fact from fiction. And you certainly have people like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. I preached a sermon on that when that book was released back in the, uh, you know, early around 2000. Uh, But, you know, he he creates, of course, he admits it's a book on fiction, but he presents it like fact. And a lot of people assumed it was factual, but there's just a lot of things in there that were pure fiction. For instance, he has Constantine, you know, destroying all these extra biblical books. There's no record anywhere in secular history that he did that. In fact, issues on the canon of scripture uh, came almost 60 years later where there were some uh, pseudepigraphal writings. Pseudo, of course, means false. Graphe is writing. So the false writings, when we speak of the pseudepigraphal writings uh, that were deemed by the body of Christ as not being true. The church never determines what goes in the canon of Scripture. They just recognize it. Uh, there is something that is unique about the Word of God when you read it. It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It is true that Constantine brought together the Council of Nicaea. Uh, some say, well, his motivation was to create, uh, you know, uh, to prevent division from happening uh, there in that century. Uh, there was a, a doctrine uh, called Arianism, which basically said that Jesus was not eternal, that he was created, so that he was not co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, but that he was a created person. And Arius uh, used uh, some verses and really misunderstood them. He distorted the scripture to his own destruction. I sure hope he repented before he died. Uh, but he um, he took those phrases, you know, that Jesus is the firstborn of, among many brethren from Romans 8 or the firstborn of all creation. And, and firstborn is a reference to uh, position. It has nothing to do with the creative aspect of Christ. True, there was a time when Jesus did not have a human body and we celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. But the Bible is clear. There was never a time when Christ did not exist. He is eternal equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ and things like that in the Nicene Creed was not determined. It was just summarizing what the Christian church had believed since the time of the apostles. And they put it in writing. There are different documents that have done this. We call one the Apostles' Creed, of course, not written by the apostles, but it's a summary of apostolic doctrine, as is the Nicene Creed. Uh, Whether Constantine himself was a Christian is certainly open for debate, and there are good people on both sides of the debate. Uh, His mother uh, certainly uh, was one who had a real burden for the Christian holy sites, and so if you ever travel to Jerusalem, you'll say, you'll meet people who say, oh yeah, you know, uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, she determined that this site was the place where Jesus was born. And well, how did she determine that? Well, maybe she went to Bethlehem and she spoke to the locals and said, well, you know, what's the scoop? What have Christians said since the time of the early church? And they brought her to a site and they said, well, this was the place in which he was born. And they argued that um, this is what tradition says. And she put her, 
you know, stamp of approval on it. Um, she did the same, of course, with the place where Jesus died and was resurrected, though that place is highly debatable and does not fit the scriptural account. But my point in raising her name is that she certainly had a burden for truth. And that certainly is a mark of a believer. And so certainly maybe Constantine fell in that same uh, that same area, um, you know, so again, you know, people interpret history in different ways. And some say his motivation for calling the Council of Nicaea was simply to keep his empire from dividing over, you know, different uh, thoughts based on who Jesus is. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was his motivation. Maybe he didn't want it, but maybe there was more to it behind that. Uh, in Constantine's thought. Uh, Maybe he was indeed a true Christian, but we do not have enough physical evidence in terms of writings that have come down to us through the centuries where we can, with a sense of determination, say, I certainly hope he was a believer and I hope we'll meet him in heaven because God's desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But a great question. And and again, a lot of uh, the debate comes over issues that Dan Brown raised that uh, secular history does not raise, but he, you know, has a tremendous imagination, the man, and that's how he came up with that novel, The Da Vinci Code. Anyway, let's go, let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us as Liz from Texas did at tbl at net, She would like to know if you would please explain First John five sixteen through 17. All right, let me just turn there for a second. John, of course, uh, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the Book of Revelation, but he also wrote three short epistles called First, Second, and Third John, and they're very, very important uh, to the church and to the body of Christ at large. Uh, in first John, let me just pick it up so that we have some context here. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God. What things? Well, he affirms a number of different marks of conversion. These things I've written, these things, it's the, 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 the two words, these things is repeated all the way through this epistle. And so John, among other things is dealing with, um, pre Gnostic heresy, This is not full-blown Gnosticism, but it's certainly Gnosticism in its early form. And he is responding to these false teachers who had come into the church. That's why he has just affirmed in the fourth chapter, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets, he says, have gone out into the world. And this is the reason we are to test the spirits. And so he's affirming the marks of genuine Christians. He's not saying, well, um, you know, there are people out there who doubt their salvation and you don't need to doubt it. Uh, Actually, he's saying just the opposite. Uh, There are reasons to doubt salvation if you don't show these marks. For instance, he says, by this we know we have passed out of death into life, that we love the brethren. So if you don't love other born-again Christians, you do not have one of the marks that John highlights as a mark of conversion. So he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. If these marks are yours, then you can know that you have the genuine item. And this is the confidence in the next verse, which we have before him, that if we ask anything, according to his will and his will is underscored here 
And it needs to be underscored in our thinking because prayer according to the will of God is answered. Sometimes we don't know the will of God. And thank God we also have another intercessor. In prayer, there are two intercessors. There's the son by whom we come through to the father, but there's also the spirit of God who uh, takes our prayers sometimes when we don't know how to pray as we ought, as Paul underscores in Romans 8, and he translates them according to the will of God. Sometimes we don't know the will of God. Other times, there, it's not open for debate. Some things are not open for debate, certainly all the moral issues. So you had, you know, last week, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, officially, they've been debating this for, you know, over a decade, but they officially came out and sanctioned homosexual marriage. So listen, if you are in a PC USA church, if you're a born again Christian, you should leave this Sunday. You should have just spent your last Sunday there because when you give money and you drop it in the plate, you are helping to support godless causes. You are helping to bring this nation down Uh, And so if you're Presbyterian and you're looking for an alternative in that realm, then look for a PCA church, but get out of the PCUSA because it has officially sanctioned itself now as an apostate denomination. So we don't have to debate issues concerning the moral will of God. I don't have to debate whether it's God's will for me to be filled with the spirit. Uh, God says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is and do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. I don't have to debate whether it's God's will for me to become more Christ-like for this is the will of God. Paul will write your sanctification. So there are some things that are plainly spelled out and we need to grab those promises from God and plead the promises of God such that we can pray in faith. And this is a confidence that we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So if I'm praying something according to the will of God, I have a promise from scripture that I can pray with full confidence and expect God to respond. So that's the context of the verses in question that this caller uh, from Texas uh, asked. Verse 16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin to death, uh, leading in the New American Standard in both uh, verses are is italicized, or is, is twice in verse 16, I should say. Uh, but it's implied. Um, if, uh, if you see someone who commits a sin not to death or not leading to death, uh, but then he says there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not to death or not leading to to death. So um, he speaks here really not of a specific sin so much as he does a kind of sin. And there are certain kinds of sin that bring death. And he's not speaking either of a spiritual death, but he's talking about physical death. Uh, we, We spoke a little bit about this last week. We talked about different books that God has. And uh, Moses uh, prays there in the Exodus that, you know, God, if, if it be your will, you know, you can blot my name out of the book of life. He's not talking about 
the eternal Lamb's Book of Life, as we would call it. It's called the Book of Life and the Lamb's Book of Life. But he's referring to that book where God has the days that were ordained for us even before there was yet one as Psalm 139 indicates. And so Moses said, God, you know, if you want to cut off my physical life, fine. Well, sometimes God does do that for other reasons. Uh, You've got Nadab and Abihu, if you remember, who take the role of a high priest in Numbers chapter 3, and they enter into a realm that they should not enter into, and God zaps them. That's it. I remember when they went into the promised land and they see the victory when Joshua and the children of Israel march around the walls and the walls collapse. And, and then the next day, day when they go into battle again, uh, they're, they're beaten. And the only conclusion is there must be sin in the camps. And of course, through that process, uh, Achan is uncovered and his sin of covetousness is highlighted, highlighted. And so God ends his life physically. Uh, you have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. So this is not simply an Old Testament deal. Uh, they lie to the Holy Spirit and so doing they lie to God. Uh, they said they sold their property for such and such a price when in reality they did not. They were trying to make themselves look like big shots and, and God cut their lives off physically. Uh, that's, that's a sin leading to death. First uh, Corinthians 5, there's a, a brother Paul says it's reported among you. The Greek word there is kaleo. It's broadcast among you. You could paraphrase it. It's broadcast among you that someone has his father's wife. There was a guy in the church who was sleeping with a stepmother. And they all knew it and they did nothing about it. And so Paul said, look, if you don't do anything about it, then I'm going to. And if it means this brother dying uh, early, a premature death, then so be it. Of course, in the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, Apparently, this man repented. Uh, later, in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, we were just speaking to this issue at the Lord's Supper. Paul talks about um, not participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. And uh, let me just read that text to you, because I think this is a good reminder, especially at this time of year, when many of God's people around the world will be uh, focusing uh, around the Lord's Supper in remembrance of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He said, for as often as you eat those bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, he says, here's the application. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks. The old English says condemnation. Uh, so it makes people think, <clears throat> based on the old English, that he's talking about damnation, so to speak. Drink, drinks damnation to himself. But it, it's a word that is used in reference to God judging his people. And that was understood in old English. It's not understood in modern English. So um, he's speaking about someone who drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, we participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion if we hold in our hands the very elements that are reminders of the death, burial, and resurrection. And at the same time, we harbor sin in our heart. And that's what some of these Corinthians were doing when they came to the Lord's Supper. Some had been extremely selfish and they hoarded food. And so some left hungry and 
Some had taken the wine and instead of mixing it with water, they drank it as strong drink and they even got a little bit buzzed and high. They were drunk at the Lord's Supper and then they participate because with the Lord's Supper was what they called the agape feast, the, the love feast. And Jude mentions this and he warns uh, the people of false teachers who will come even into your love feast. And the love feast was often accompanied uh, with the Lord's Supper. It was for many Christians in the early centuries, uh, one of the best meals they'd eat the whole week because there were 60 million people in the Roman Empire who were in slavery. When the Rome, uh, when Rome captured a people, they would enslave the people rather than put them all in prison. They would assign people uh, slaves. And that's precisely what would happen and so for many of them, you know, life was not all that great. And one of the best meals they would have all week was the love feast. And it was kind of like a, a big potluck supper. And it would be followed by the Lord's Supper. And so the, the warning here is not to unbelievers, which unfortunately is how this passage is often uh, interpreted. And it's interpreted that way based on the old English which uh, had a different connotation. And this is why a modern literal translation can be very, very helpful. Um, But most uh, virtually, in fact, I think every new translation, including the new King James captures it, that this is not a a warning to unbelievers to participate in the Lord's not to participate. It's a warning to believers not to participate in an unworthy fashion. And so when we come to the Lord's supper, we're to examine our hearts carefully we're to judge the body rightly by confessing known sin and repenting of it. And because they had not done this for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, meaning some of you died. But he said, if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So you've got people like Nadab and Abihu, you've got Achan, you've got the man in 1 Corinthians 5, you've got believers in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, whom God shut, uh, uh, closed down their life early. He, he ended it early. And that's what 1 John 5 is, <clears throat> is referring to. Look, if, if you sense something is according to God's will, then you should definitely pray. But if you sense something is not according to the will of God, then you shouldn't pray for it. And so James speaks of this is reference to the elders of the church. Uh, that's an interesting passage, even in, in and of itself, a passage that is often abused. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, not the elders of the churches, but the elders, plural of the church, singular because there was a plurality of elders that led the early New Testament church as should be today and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And so he's saying, look, if, if you're sick and it's the kind of sickness that came from the discipline of the local church, then you should go back to those who disciplined you, namely the elders of the church and uh, deal with it. And, and so if they sense genuine repentance, then they can pray in faith for this person to be restored. This is a verse that's abused by faith healers in our day. And, 
and uh, they rub oil on you and they say in the name of Jesus and they usually put some accent there on, on Jesus, you know, I heal you. And, uh, and if you're not healed, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not their fault. It's your fault, your lack of faith. But this is actually in the context dealing with people who are sick because of, of unrepented sin. And, and it's assumed here, I think, that they're coming to the elders because the elders are really the uh, final uh, adjudicating body, so to speak, representing the church in the discipline of someone in the local assembly. Therefore, he said, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And this uh, this verse was used by a popular woman teacher a number of years ago to say that we should sit around in circles and confess our sins to each other. No, the, the biblical principle is you only confess your sin to a person if you sinned against them. And usually the confession is as public as the sin is. Uh, he, he's dealing here with people who have come under um, sickness and potentially death. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 7 was told the same thing, if you remember. God said, don't pray for those folks. Uh, they're, they're, they're worshiping the queen of heaven. They're involved in idolatry. Uh, d- don't, don't pray for them. They don't need your prayer. What they need to do is they need to repent. So, you know, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, prolongs life. And of course, ultimately, all sin leads to death. I mean, that's why people die. But he's talking about uh, sin, a kind of sin that leads to an early death. And if a person is engaged in that, um, if you should pray for anything, pray for their repentance, but not for their healing, because they they need to get right with God. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We just did uh, get a call in here, and they dictated their question. They'd like to know if the Masons are a cult. They say that uh, some Masons hold office, such as a deacon in their church, and when a member of the church dies, the pastor calls the Masons in to perform their rituals. Should pastors be allowing the Masons to take part in the funerals, or should pastors know better? Well, you know, there's a lot of good people who are involved in the Masons and not really knowing what they believe or affirm. Uh, Doctrinally, they affirm a lot of heresy. Uh, Someone lent to me once a Masonic Bible with all of its notes. And as I started reading the notes, I thought, man, this thing is just filled with heresy. Uh, They teach, for instance, salvation by works in the Masonic notes, the official sanctioned Bible by the Masons. Uh, There was a a study that was done in the 1980s by the Southern Baptist Convention. It came out that study in two volumes. You might even find it online if you want to study it in a little more detail. There was also a little short booklet that was done by Dr. Norman Geisler uh, on the whole issue of Freemasonry and what it taught and what it teaches. Most people who are in Freemasonry really don't know what it teaches. I know there's like 33 degrees or whatever it is, and they're down there at the bottom ranks and just a bunch of guys getting together sometimes to do service projects, some things that they do that are really very good that they need to be commended for. Uh, The Shriner hospitals have been a great blessing to families, you know, around the nation in providing uh, folks with uh, children with, you know, some really challenging diseases that, you know, could cost the family, you know, tens of thousands of dollars where they provide, you know, free medical care uh, for the portion your insurance does not pay. And so they've been a great blessing to many families across the nation. So I, I commend them for that. 
Um, but, you know, should a pastor be involved in Freemasonry? I think it's very unwise. And should a pastor, you know, invite the Masons to come and participate in the funeral? And I would say no. Um, you know, I got burned one time where they showed up and, uh, this was years ago when I was, uh, recently at community Bible church and they showed up at the graveyard and I knew what they were about. And I said, look, you know, I don't want to get into a, a battle here, you know, with the family because the family is obviously in ignorance. I had in fact just led this man to Christ about two months prior and he was a new young growing Christian and we had never even discussed it. And I'm not sure when the last time he even had been to a Freemasonry meeting, but they showed up with their dirty little aprons and wanted to do their dance around the coffin, you know, to get him into the great Masonic lodge in heaven. I said, you can do your dance after I'm gone, but it's not going to be a part of the service, but I don't want to make this an issue with the, with this grieving family. Uh, that only happened to me once. And I thought, boy, if that ever happens again, you know, I'll give a, heads up to the family and try to explain it. So, you know, they, they do a lot of uh, unbiblical things and they hold to a lot of unbiblical doctrines. I wouldn't say they're a cult in the sense that, you know, they would, um, you know, posit themselves as some kind of religion, a church that you need to be a member of. It's, it's a service organization, but they have very many cultic doctrines that are anti-Christian in terms of orthodoxy, not like a Jim Jones, you know, drink the Kool-Aid type of thing, but uh, the occult in the theological sense, uh, where you depart from one or more major historical non-negotiable doctrines, and they definitely fall into that. So good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Another listener had uh, taken the spiritual gifts inventory and scored very highly in discernment. She would like to know what her next step should be. How does she use this gift? Well, uh, certainly uh, discernment or the, uh, the gift of discerning spirits more literally is an important gift in the local church. Uh, it has many expressions in terms of how it might show itself. Certainly there are people with the gift of discernment that need to, you know, not go around like the Holy Spirit, you know, like there's sin in your life. But the way it typically functioned in the early century was that they were sensitive to false teachers who came into the church. I I remember uh, I was in a church as a relatively new Christian when I was living in Boston, attending Boston College. It was called Ruggles Street Baptist Church. And there was a uh, a lady there in the church, her name was Evie Thurby, and she'd been on staff with Campus Crusade. And then at this point in her life, she was heading women's ministry. And And they were in a staff meeting today, and she said, you know, I, there's a, there's someone who we have brought into our church as a member. And I, I just, it, she just does not rest in my spirit. And I, and I think we need to be very careful because I sense there's something wrong here and something evil here. And no one else picked it up. None of the other pastors picked it up, but this uh, woman did. And I believe she had the gift of discernment. Well, it turns out this man who they invited into the church, who actually became the organist for the church, was uh, a follower of Reverend Moon. And unfortunately, in pure congregationalism, which uh, most Southern Baptist churches have, uh, this was not a Southern Baptist church. 
but it, I believe it was at the time an American Baptist church and certainly a Bible-believing one and one that was conservative. That, that denomination has now gone south since the 70s and for the most part is apostate today. Uh, just like I mentioned the PCUSA last week coming out and affirming you know, homosexual marriage. In either case, um, uh, as it turns out, this Mooney was actually recruiting other Moonies and they were coming into the church. They were joining the church saying that Jesus was their personal Lord and savior. Some faked conversion. They were being baptized as members of the church and under pure congregationalism, if you get enough, then they can outvote the rest of the congregation. And that was their goal. It was a hostile takeover, so to speak. They wanted to own the building and all the properties and, turn it into a center for Reverend Moon. Uh, So she had the gift of discerning spirits. That would be, say, an application of it. I've seen people with the gift of discernment many times write material uh, that is helpful to the body of Christ. We we just saw him. I uh, had a caller asking about uh, Liz from, uh, or I'm not sure where, this was a local caller, I guess, that just called in and asked about Freemasonry. Um, again, someone with the gift of discernment would be in tune to that and see the need. They don't necessarily have to write the material. Again, Dr. Norman Geisler's little booklet is a treasure, and you could go to half.com, I'm sure, and find it, and that would be a great summary of what they teach and where they contradict the Bible. But people with this gift there's a certain protection that they bring into the body of Christ. And that's um, certainly one expression of how it could be used. And it might be that you have another spiritual gift as well that you need to someone, I think called last week or emailed us last week. And it was kind of a dual question uh, on along the same line. They also had the gift of administration and said they were disabled. And I said, look, you know, if you're a disabled person, you can do a lot of administrative things in the church. So we've gotten a very similar question here in the last two Tuesdays. Anyway, let's go to the next question, Rick, and see if we can respond. All right. Uh, We had actually a follow-up on that Shriner question. They wanted to know, is it okay then to uh, bring your child to a Shriner's hospital? Uh, Yeah, I don't think there's a problem with that. I mean, uh, look, um, in in the end, it's all dirty money, so to speak. It's all unrighteous mammon. Uh, So it's totally impossible to divorce yourself completely from any kind of, you know, spiritual defilement in this world. Uh, You put your money, say, in a local bank, and what if that local bank has uh, loaned money to build a new center for Planned Parenthood? Uh, Not good. Not not good. Not, Not good at all. But you put your money in a bank, and yet you don't look at every single loan that they've made. And the Shriners Hospital is, you know, pretty much a you know, it, it, it's, it's a neutral organization. I've been into them before and they're not, you know, promoting, so to speak, a, uh, the doctrine of Freemasonry. They're just providing medical care and some of the best in the world, uh, for, for people who are in need, whatever they are, Christian, non-Christian, and they're, they're not even speaking to the subject of Freemasonry. So there have been children, you know, with cerebral palsy and other really crippling diseases that they've helped in a tremendous way. So I commend them for that. You know, when, when unbelievers or believers do things that are good, they need to be commended and not, not criticized. So All right. um, go on. Very good. Our next caller has a question about Isaiah 25, 6. They know your teachings regarding alcohol, and they'd like to hear your opinion on the aged wine, as some use this passage to allow the drinking of alcohol. 
Well, alcohol is always a sticky issue, especially in our day, because if you were an evangelical leader in America 30 years ago, almost every evangelical leader, without question, affirmed the doctrine of abstinence or the position of abstinence. That's what they taught. Doctrine means teaching. Why did they do that? Well, for several reasons. One, they said, well, it has the appearance of evil in our day and because it's certainly uh, an abused substance and it is often associated with sexual immorality. And they said that 40 years ago. Uh, look at the advertising today. Look at spring break in America and the things that they are promoting. These are the beer industries there who are promoting their product very often free on the places where they go for spring break uh, because they want those, you know, college students to come and uh, use their product as a way of life because there's big money in the beer industry. And of course, if you, you know, have seen any of the things that have been on national news here recently, it's really sad because of all the sexual immorality that is associated with, with drinking. It has the appearance of evil. You know, can a Christian really drink in our day and, and say, you know, I'm glorifying God. You know, whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And certainly, you know, the scripture says it's not to do, it's not good to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You're not to cause a brother to stumble. And in the context of that phrase in, in Romans 14, it, it looks both ways. It looks at someone who would mimic your behavior. You know, my, my son, uh, my youngest son stayed in the home, rented from uh, a Christian. Actually, the man was a, a leader in his church up in Washington, D.C. Thank God, you know, my son Jameson, you know, his thinking is intact and he's got his head screwed on straight. And, you know, and he went down there into the basement where he went, rented this uh, room when he worked for Senator Tim Scott. And, you know, there's this room with cases of beer stacked one upon the other. And this is a leader in the church. And it's what, what, what's so sad is very often people will see something like that and they'll mimic it. They'll say, well, if so-and-so can drink a beer, and obviously he drinks more than one if he's got cases of it, then why can't I? And we cause people to stumble. You know, God says drunkenness is wrong. So where do you become drunk? You know, at what point do you cross the line? You know, one beer when you have a buzz two beers, you say, well, I don't get a buzz anymore. It takes me three to get a, a little bit of a buzz. Well, do you sin to a point? Uh, do you develop, uh, you know, an immunity against the first couple so that you can drink the first couple uh, without it affecting your mind? Look, the greatest of all the commandments is to love God with your whole uh, heart, mind, and soul. And so we worship God with the mind. Um, recently a college student said to, to one of my sons, he said, what's the purpose of getting, of drinking if you can't get drunk? I thought that, that, that summarizes it. That, that really says it really pretty well. So, you know, our, our goal as Christians is not to see how close we can get to sin. So people argued against it on that level. And they certainly argued against it on the level of strong drink. Um, people who know me know that I teach the Bible does not teach total abstinence. What do I mean by that? Because alcohol was allowed under certain conditions. You could give it to a dying man. God said you in Proverbs 31, give it to a, a dying despairing person. 
just like today, we give morphine to people who are in that situation, not to make them a drug addict, not to give them a high, but as an act of compassion. So the Bible doesn't teach total abstinence in that respect. Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your frequent ailments. He was probably drinking water only. And of course, the water in that day was often contaminated, as it is in many parts of the world to this day, and it would make you sick. Missionaries were known for carrying wine satchels, you know, a, a wine skin around their neck. And as they traveled, they would squirt some wine into the water. Why? Because the alcohol killed the bacteria and made it safe to drink. And so strong drink was not, you know, whiskeys and the rums and the vodkas and all the distilled liquors that come almost 600 years after the Bible is completed. But it was just naturally fermented wine. And in that sense, it was a blessing. It was a blessing in that you could use it as a commodity in which to survive and function. You couldn't always filter the water. Uh, though there are some cases in ancient Egyptian writing, writings where they filtered water, but it was a very, you know, involved process. It certainly wasn't practical to constantly boil water, so you added some wine, and it was typically done in a three, four, or five to one ratio. Four parts water, one part wine. Uh, how do I know that? Well, you go back and you look at things in the historical cultural setting. And in the historical cultural setting of the day, um, God really defines through the culture what he meant by it. You know, when Jesus said, you're blessed when you wash one another's feet, why, why don't we do that? Because you go back in the historical cultural setting. He said a woman should have her, hair, should have her head covered in church. You know, why don't we do that? Well, they do in some parts of the world because of the cultural uh, implications of it. Um, but in most of Christendom today, women no longer cover their head in church because of the historical cultural setting that helps you to understand how to apply a timeless principle. The timeless principle is that you recognize your husband as the head, that you're not both the head, that he's the head of your home. But how you express that timeless principle does change based on the culture. And so when you read the religious literature of the Greeks, uh, secular and religious, they define strong drink as just naturally fermented wine or beer. And God describes strong drink in a very negative way for the most part. And he doesn't want his people to participate in it. And the, the Talmud it said, make sure that you always mix it in a three to one ratio. And the Didash, a fourth century past, or a second century pastoral manual, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, because wine would ferment. And so, again, context determines. Sometimes people in ignorance say, well, the word wine is always referring to an unfermented subject. Well, I think not. Uh, it can be used both ways. Oinos, the Greek, and yayin, both in and outside of the Bible, can refer to new wine that hasn't turned yet, or it can refer to fermented. And so the context must determine. And so God's word taught uh, that you're not to use strong drink and wanting to obey that. You find the second century pastoral manual where it said you, you mix it in a ratio so that you're not guilty of using strong drink. So the text in Isaiah 26, 6, um, I, what was the passage? Was it uh, 25, uh, 6. 25, 6? I was going to say, okay. Um, and the Lord of hosts will prepare a, a lavish banquet for all peoples on the mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. 
and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe uh, tears away from their faces. Well, again, if this is a reference to uh, aged wine in the sense that it has fermented, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Just like, you know, people take John chapter 2 and they say, well, Jesus drank wine. You know, and he did as his first miracle, turning the water into wine. Well, uh, we don't know if the water that he turned into wine was fermented or not. And some say, well, no, that's what the text teaches. No, it does not. And if you and if you take the statement that's made by the head waiter, uh, it says uh, Jesus said, fill the water pots with water and they filled them to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you've kept the good wine until now. Again, it doesn't say anything about the nature of the wine, but the quality of the wine. And there's only one translation out of the 200 some English translations that we have that take the phrase drunk freely um, and they render it have become drunk. Well, technically, you can take the Greek and you could make it read. Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have become drunk, then that which is poor, you could translate the Greek that way, or the Greek could, could read, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. Well, um, think about the implications of the latter. If, if you're saying, as the New International Version is saying, well, once men have become drunk, then what you're basically saying is Jesus waited until they were loaded, they were drunk, so they couldn't tell the difference, and uh, and now he's bringing out the best and that the waiter is saying, well, you know, that doesn't make sense because usually you serve the best first. And then when people are so loaded and they can't tell the difference, you bring out the cheap. Is that what the text is saying? If it is, then you're blaspheming our savior. You're basically saying that he contributed to the sin of people, that he contributed to making people drunk. I hope you don't want to say that. Um, look, if you come over from my house and, um, we're going to have sandwiches, I'm going to give you my best. So I'll pull out all the roast beef. And when the roast beef is gone, if you're still hungry and I don't have any more roast beef, then out comes the bologna. Um, and, and that's really the thought here. You come over and I've got some Coca-Cola. Great. But when all the Coke's gone, then we bring out the check cola, the cheapo stuff. And so Jesus did what was not expected, but he was not making people drunk. So you have to interpret scripture with scripture. In Christians today, you know, Perry Noble, who's coming to this area, a very, very dangerous teacher. And again, I'm going to highlight this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I hope pastors and people are listening because he's coming to Beaufort County. He just recently came out and said, don't, don't, don't let anyone say that I say you, you can only you know, drink one glass of wine. I always have at least two. Uh, look, um, if he wants to contribute to the downfall of people, that's his choice. But I don't want to. I'm going to let scripture interpret scripture. And God says, you know, kings shouldn't drink it. Uh, they should totally abstain. Priests had to totally abstain. And we go back to the first question of the day from 
uh, New Hampshire, wherever it came from, that, you know, we're a kingdom, or Tennessee, we're a kingdom of priests. Uh, we're our believer priests. We, we have every reason to abstain. Anyway, um, if you want to listen to some sermons on this, uh, go to the website, uh, searchthescriptures.org, and there's quite a few that you can listen to that will walk you through some of these scriptures carefully. But let scripture interpret scripture. All right, we've got about three minutes left and a live caller. Let's see if we can get their question answered. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Berge. Good morning. What's your question? This might be uh, a little out of the ordinary. I'm with a young man named Caleb who works for me, and I'm sharing the gospel with him and trying to lead him to Christ. And I told him about your program, and he has a question. He doesn't want to go on the air, but he has a question that he says that's been troubling him for a very long time. And his question was, if... God is a jealous God, and jealousy is a sin, and God is sinless. How could that be? Well, it's a good question. It's an excellent question. Um, It's just like in English, words find their meaning in context. You know, when I use the word pool, am I referring to a swimming pool? I, the, the, The game that you shoot, you shoot a game of pool, a car pool. When I use the word trunk, am I speaking what's at the bottom of my bed? Am I speaking... You know, what's in the back of the car? Am I speaking what's at the base of a tree or out in front of an elephant? Well, context determines. And there are some words in the Bible that mean only one thing in every context. So context is very important. Uh, Anger. People say, well, Jesus got angry, so he must have sinned. Well, there's an assumption there that all anger is sin. Well, obviously it's not because God says in the book of Ephesians, he says, be angry, but don't sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger, which tells me there's a kind of anger that is righteous anger. If God says, be angry, that's a command, but do not sin. And so Proverbs delineates that. And so it is with jealousy. There's an unrighteous jealousy, but there's a righteous jealousy as well. And God is a righteous God. God cannot sin. And everything that God has done is righteous. And God has, look, if if someone, um, you know, is hitting on your wife, you have a reason to be jealous over that because that's an exclusive relationship. Uh, No one is supposed to hit on your wife. And God is a jealous God. And he repeatedly identifies himself of that. And most of the time in the context of false worshipers, people who want to worship a false God, an idol of sorts, where God is the creator, has an exclusive right to those whom he has created to worship him and no one else. And I, the Lord, the God and the jealous God, now I'll visit your sins on, you know, the generations that will follow if you ignore what I say. So it's a good question, a fair question. Uh, I'm I'm out of time. I wish I could spend a little more time on it, but we have had another hour slip away. Where did it go so quickly? A number of questions we didn't get to, but God willing, there's always another Tuesday for us to come back if the Lord doesn't come back first and judge the living and the dead. Hope uh, you will walk with Christ this day and serve him with all your heart.